The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now, in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Herman Melville's novel, Redburn. Now, this is actually a re-recording for me, my first recording of this episode. Uh, it just—it was a pretty bad recording. It had a lot of feedback. And normally, I check that stuff before I throw stuff up. But uh, in this case, I, I must have forgot to, to double check. And I put it up for a few hours, and then I realized that... This has some really bad sound feedback, and I don't really know the cause of it. I've, I've never really had that problem before. You know, usually if I have recording problems, it's because I'm I'm not using the, my external microphone. I I might be using the the computer's internal microphone, right? And then it, you don't get good sound quality or adequate sound quality, as in my case. In this case, I don't know what was going on, and it just was, came off really bad, and I didn't catch it in time. So now i got to come back and, and re-record. So we're, we're picking up where we left off. So we looked at chapters, uh, basically in the last two episodes, we looked at chapters 1 through 38, which explores our character Redburn, this young man who gets on this ship to travel to Liverpool, a merchant ship. And he arrived in Liverpool, and he sees, he encounters... The exploitations that sailors face when they're when they're in port by people eager to take advantage of the I guess the loneliness and the restlessness and the kind of the the liquidity of of the maritime working class, right? Melville doesn't think they're bad people. He just thinks that they're they're kind of restless and and spendthrift, and this is something that becomes easily exploited. Well, anyways, pick up. Actually, yeah, I think we're a little bit farther than, than 38 because we, we talked about that stuff um, looking looking at the book. Um, yeah, where we pick up is, is, is the introduction of the character of, of Harry Bolton. That's, that's really the, the beginning of this third, third, this third hundred pages or so of Redburn is this introduction of the character Harry Bolton and how he shapes... Redburn's life and especially the return voyage. But I, I still want to say a little bit more about what this novel is trying to do. Um, because in Melville's sea fiction, you often get these these broad kind of metaphorical looks at the world, especially in White Jacket. That's maybe a very conscious look at it. Moby Dick does this while also criticizing kind of grandiose symbolic themes and, and making everything reflective of something else. Um, and the early novels, like Taipei and Omu, were more focused critiques of imperialism and the missionary activity in, in the Pacific. But of course, Marty, you have kind of an effort of, of trying to use the ship and the voyage to symbolize the world system in a way, although it comes off in a very odd way to a lot of readers. This one, it, it's maybe harder to see on the surface, him trying to do that. But it's... What you really are looking at is the circuits of goods and people in the world system. And the first half is about the movement of, of goods to, to Liverpool, this merchant ship going to Liverpool. And the return voyage then is the movement of, of labor. So narratively what happens is Redburn encounters 
the English poor when he's in Liverpool. And he encounters them in very brutal fashion. There, He sees them in their worst state. The homeless, the hungry, the, the, the sick, the dying. So he sees the kind of the worst of the exploited elements of the English working class in Liverpool. And then on the return voyage, he's with those same types of people as they sell their final possessions to pay for voyage, to pay for you know, the trip back to America on the ship. So the ship becomes crowded, not with commodities now, but with, with labor. And that labor will, of course, be commodified when it gets to, when it gets to the United States. We don't really see what happens to them, but we know that they're going to enter into the American industrial machine and become, become part of that working class. And it's just how we're really talking now about a global labor market. And, and that makes, it, I think, a very quite modern interpretation of, of 19th century capitalism, that it's not just about movement of commodities, it's not just about fa- establishing factories. It's actually about this, this global labor market, right, that where, where workers can be exchanged across space and time as capital needs them. Right, capital can move. We see this all the time, but labor also is moves. Maybe not as quickly as capital. Maybe not with the same flexibility that capital moves. You know, they have to face walls and and they need passports and they face discrimination and things like that. But certainly, labor moves. So it's a it still feels very modern in the sense that we're we're really looking at the 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 parallel side, the two sides of the same coin, which is movement of goods. And the movement of people. And it's really in the last third that you get that second part of it, where you realize this is really a novel about, about this impoverished English working class flooding into the United States. And Redburn is just an observer of, of this larger story that's being told. Okay, so let's talk about Harry Bolton. Harry Bolton is a new character that's introduced in the last 100 pages of, of Redburn, and he's going to be with, with them through the end, and, and his fate is going to be something very much on Redburn's mind and the final pages of, of the novel. Now, Harry Bolton is someone he meets on the docks of Liverpool, and he's essentially a, an English dandy. His background is a little bit suspicious, and it's not fully realized. He seems to want to go on these adventures and wants to experience the world a little bit more. And he does that by going on the docks and he wants to serve on the, the ship. And so he's got this plans of, of going on Redburn's ship and, and going back to going to America and, and experiencing like a broader life outside of that. But his whole background is a bit, it's, it's a little bit unclear really where he's from. And he's of a very dubious class status. Quote, according to his own account, Harry Bolton was a native of Bury St. Edmunds, a borough of Suffolk, not very far from London, where he was early left an orphan under the charge of his only aunt. Between his aunt and himself, his mother had divided her fortune, and young Henry thus fell heir to a portion of around 5,000 pounds. Being of a roving mind, as he approached the majority, he grew restless of the retirement of a country place, especially as he had no profession or business of any kind to engage his attention. In vain did... Barry, with all of its fine old monastic attractions, lure him to abide on the beautiful banks of her lake and under the shadow of her stately and soared old Saxon tower. End quote. So this this is the root cause of of Harry Bolton's restlessness. So he has money, he has wealth, and he has resources, but he's not really of that upper class because culturally, because he was an orphan and he came to that money kind of late. So he had that kind of rough childhood and He's trying to reconcile these two two things, and he just wants to 
kind of adventure around. And that's what leads him to the docks and leads him to being introduced to, to Redburn. And he's actually kind of the good friend for Redburn because Redburn's been sitting in Liverpool. He doesn't have much money. So he's just been hanging out in Liverpool waiting for the ship to, to leave again, right? And th this is described in the previous section of the novel really as a problem that you have this like month or two months where the ship is just waiting to, to leave again. Stevedores are working on the ship. You're waiting for commodities to come or in this case, you're waiting for people to fill up the ship. And, you know, the sailors really don't have that much to do, so they spend through their wages very quickly. And this is why sailors can't get ahead, according to Redburn, especially on these Atlantic voyages. On the Pacific voyages, you know, they're gone for a year, two years, or a whaling voyage. And at the end of that, they, they come back with some savings built up. But these Atlantic sailors don't seem to, to have that, that same I guess, benefit. I guess the Pacific sailors are more like these Halliburton contractors, right? Who'll, who go serve or go work for two years driving trucks in Iraq or something and come back with hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up. Or I'm, I'm working in China, really, and not making that much, but really with the hopes of saving the vast majority of my salary, right? Pacific voyagers had that benefit. Atlantic voyagers didn't, basically because the ports ate up their, their salary. So Redburn's a bit bored, and he wants to go to, to London, and he mentions this to Harry Bolton, and Harry Bolton's the kind of person who can accommodate him and show him around London. So he says, quote, In those long talks, I frequently expressed an earnest desire I cherished to make a visit to London, and related how strongly tempted I had been on one Sunday to walk the whole way without a penny in my pocket. To this, Harry rejoined that nothing would delight him more than to show me the capital. And he even meaningly but mysteriously hinted at the possibility of doing so before my days had passed. And so that's... That's the next chapter is basically Harry Bolton, you know, gets him to go to London with him for a day. And this is going to have consequences for the characters later on when, you know, the captain's able to say, well, you weren't, you kind of deserted for a while. We don't have to pay you your whole wages or whatever. But Redburn takes, is taken to, to London and he has this really bizarre night where they go to like this social club where he's totally outside of his class. And, and Harry Bolton... You've all had this experience at a party, right, where someone takes you to a party and it's all his friends or his social circle or her social circle and you feel a bit out of place. You don't really know anyone. You're trying to make conversation, but it's a bit awkward. And then meanwhile, your friend is bouncing around with all of his or her buddies, right? And you, you feel a bit awkward and isolated. That's really essentially what happens to, to Redburn in this, quote, mysterious night in, in London. But they go to this, like weird establishment that seems to be a gambling den of some sort, but it has a lot of more upper-class people just hanging out there. And it's, it's a really fun chapter, and it's, you know, it doesn't quite fit in. It, it strikes you as you read it as something quite different from the rest of the story, which is about sailors, where we get the snapshot of, of the elite. Um, and I think that's important when we remember that this, this is a story so much about misery of the people, not necessarily Redburn himself, who does have some misery, but the misery of, of the masses, the misery of the, of the urban proletariat in Liverpool, the misery of the emigres. And, you know, there's another side to that always, right? There's the, the upper class. Every lower class has an upper class that, that got there on their backs. And you almost, you, you almost need that kind of snapshot window into it. And this little chapter gives a bit of it, but it, it's really bizarre. It's almost kind of like a surreal moment for Redburn because it's just a day or two. And then he, he goes back to Liverpool. 
So then they go back, and he goes back to Liverpool, and the ship is ready to go back to America. And that's going to be the rest of the novel, the last 80 pages or so, is this return to, to England with this, this large population of, of emigres. And these emigres are all of the lower classes. Um, they're not like elite tourists. There were some of those elite tourists on the way to Liverpool. These are a very different group of people and, and, and it's the people are essentially the commodity quote here must be mentioned that owing to a great number of sailing of ships sailing to the yankee ports from liverpool the competition among them in obtaining immigrant passengers who as a cargo are much more remote remunerative than crates and bales it's exceedingly great so much so that some of the agents they employ do not scruple to deceive the poor applicant for passage with all manner of fables concerning the short span of time with the ship will make them run across the ocean. This often induces the immigrants to provide a much smaller stock of provisions than they otherwise would, the effect to which is sometimes proves to be in the last degree lamentable, as will be seen further on. And though benevolent societies have long organized in Liverpool for the purpose of keeping offices where an immigrant can obtain reliable information and advice concerning their best mode of embarkation and other matters interesting to them, and though the English authorities have imposed a law providing that every captain of an emigrant ship bound for any port in America shall see to it that each passenger is provided with rations of food for 60 days, yet all this has not deterred mercenary ship captains and unprincipled agents from participating in the grossest deceptions, nor exempted the immigrants themselves from the very sufferings intended to be averted. And that sums up a lot of what happens in the last section of the novel. You know, there's this competition for these emigres who were really profitable voyages. And one result of that is, is outright lies to them about how long it takes. They say it takes three weeks instead of six weeks or whatever. And it ends up people starving and people going hungry and people getting sick and other negative consequences of unpreparedness. And it's just exploiting a desperate working class. Other ways that people take advantage of the system is revealed in chapter 48 called The Living Corpse, which is kind of fascinating, where actually someone signed on as a sailor to get the advance wages, and instead of bringing on an actual working sailor, they drop a dead body onto there and take the wages out. And so the count is that there's like a body on the ship, but it ends up being a dead body that they find later on. At least that's the explanation they get. What happens is they find a dead body on the ship after they depart. And then the only explanation we get, I think we get it from Jackson. The explanation is that, you know, sometimes people, they, they'll like leave a dead body on board and then claim, then sign up as a sailor. I don't know why you have to leave the dead body, why you can't sign up as a sailor, take your wages and run. I'm sure people do that all the time. But... Anyways, that's the explanation of what happens here. Um, and most of the rest of this story is about these... It's a little bit about Harry Bolton and how he doesn't really know anything about sailing and his failures. His wanderlust, his, his desire to, to go to sea doesn't match his ability. And this way he parallels Redburn himself. Redburn had that same problem. Like he, he went to sea with some romantic imagery and, and ideas in his head. And his skills and abilities didn't match his ambition. Harry Bolton is the same problem, but I think Harry Bolton is shown as less willing to learn and maybe having less at stake for than Redburn. I mean, Redburn is a little bit more, you know, needing the money. They doesn't he he his his father used to have money, but the Redburn's family now doesn't have much wealth. Harry Bolton has these 5,000 pounds waiting for him back in England, so he doesn't actually put in the time to learn, and he's just kind of a goofball on board the ship. 
Um, so we learn a little bit about him and his foolishness and his fumbling around. But uh, the other characters we were introduced to, one is, is Carlo. And Melville often has these sort of, I guess, homoerotic fantasies in some of his novels. There's, I know there's a lot of speculation about Melville's sexuality. In this case, you know, you saw it a lot in Omu, I think. A little bit in Taipei, but especially Omu. Uh, Marty to a degree. Here it's this character Carlo who's one of the emigrates who catches Redburn's eye and gets described in, in quite a lot of detail as essentially a, a fine example of a of a man uh, that and they become sort of friends and it, he admires Carlo throughout the throughout the voyage. So we learn a little bit about him but more largely this section of the story is all about the emigrates. And what they face and so they, they face a couple major struggles as they cross the Atlantic uh, what a big one is that they just run out of food they didn't pack enough food and they start to run out and eventually the captain's forced to give them a small amount of food or something like a potato or maybe like a, two potatoes or something per day per immigrant because that's all the ship stores can really support they didn't prepare enough and now we've Melville's already established that this is a common problem brought about just because people lie. This, the captains lied about how long the voyage would take. And, and the result was that they, they went hungry. And so by the end of the voyage, these emigrants were practically starving, living on just a, a potato or something a, a day. But that's not even the worst of what they face. The worst thing they face is an actual plague that hits the ship. Uh, a disease runs through, killing off a large number of, of the emigrants. So you end up with this you know, essentially a, the death of a great number of these emigrants, including people's, you know, wives and daughters. These people are going over as families, right? So people who plan to go over as families, you know, end up departing with just a, a woman and her kids or something, right? With no resources, no real plan to make a living. And this is a real catastrophe. Now, Melville brutally doesn't give us any cathartic res resolution to this. It's just, he's, we're told that these people who, plan to go over his families are now just orphans and you know single mothers and and that's just life in capitalist America they're just going to be gobbled up the city's going to take them they'll find a job somewhere I suppose but that's their, their fate is in their own hands at this point there's no system to support them and and Melville certainly laments this but there's not much he can do he's just he's just Redburn here's how Melville writes and this is one of those sections of the novel where I think Melville was really reaching high literary levels. He's, he's really doing something pretty amazing. And it's not seen as one of his greatest novels. And, you know, we've already talked about the history of this, this book. You know, after Marty was so poorly received, he just sold like a few hundred copies. You know, he, he went back to the novels that made him famous, which are more personalized, you know, fictionalized accounts of his own experiences. And he already done the Pacific stuff, so he decided, well, I, I was on one of these voyages as a young man, so he just kind of retells it. And later on, he's going to do, of course, White Jacket, where he's going to tell about his life in the Navy. And these are going to be based on his own experiences and going to be much more realistic than Marty, much more realistic than Moby Dick, even. And he, in that sense, you might think, well, this is just him trying to make a buck, right, or restore his career. It's not really where his true heart is, but there are moments where he really reaches these, you know, achieves, I think, something really wonderful. And I think when he's talking about this plague, he does this. 
Quote, you see no plague ship driving through a stormy sea. You see here no groans of despair. You see no corpses thrown over the bulwarks. You mark not the writhing hands and torn hair of widows and orphans. All is blank. And one of these blanks I have but filled up in recounting the details of the Highlander's calamity. Besides that natural tendency which hurries into oblivion the last woes of the poor, other causes combine to suppress the detailed circumstances of disasters like these. Such things, if widely known, operate unfavorably to the ship and make her a bad name. And to avoid detection and quarantine, a captain will stake the case in the most palatating light and strive to hush it up as much he can. In no better place than this, perhaps, can a few words be said concerning emigrant ships in general. Let us waive the agitated national topic as to whether such multitudes of foreign poor should be landed on our American shores. Let us waive it with the, only, with the only thought that if they can get here, they have God's right to come. Though they bring all Ireland and her miseries with them, for the whole world is the patrimony of the whole world. There is no telling who does not own a stone in the Great Wall of China. But we waive all this and will only consider how best the immigrants can come hither, since come they do and come they must and will. Um, and that's that's the end of the quote. But he that I want to focus on here. But he follows us up with policy provisions, and, and this is something you're going to see again in in White Jacket, where Melville is going to be focusing on on exact policy corrections. But he, it's here he he's calling for some sort of legislation. Now he's much more naive than the character in White Jacket is. It's it's just a, essentially a, a younger boy. He doesn't really know what to do about this, but he thinks something needs to be done morally for these these emigrates but you know it's not really clear what can be done but you know there is this mass amount of suffering he's been describing you know all the orphans and and widows and and fatherless children motherless children coming to america from from ireland and england and that's that's the heart i think of this part of the story is the story of these emigrates um, there's just not much more to say, really. Um, in chapter 59, we get the, the, the end of Jackson, who, of course, was that brutal bully who commanded through his will and through his kind of brutal brutality the, the forecastle. You know, you have these parallel hierarchies. You have the formal hierarchy with the officers and the men. But within the forecastle itself, you have characters like Jackson who are able to dominate through their skill or their, or their just kind of will. Uh, in White Jacket, it's going to be skill and nobility that's going to lead some characters to rise up, and that's where he focuses. Here, he's more focusing on Jackson, who's just just a, someone who can boss other people around. And his end is is fascinating. He he dies just kind of falling from the top sail into the water, and no one can save him, and and that's the end of him. But then he's completely forgotten, right? His his power and his authority only lasts as long as his life. And no longer when he can no longer express his will and enforce his will on on other people he's immediately forgotten by the sailors who used to follow him right now there were always a faction like an anti-jackson faction on this in the highlander on the ship but it was kind of small but most people seem to essentially sort of follow jackson but with jackson's death he's just forgotten right and you there's characters we're going to meet in white jacket who aren't so easily forgotten Right, like Jack Chase is, is the person there. Same Jackson, right? Jackson, Jack Chase. I don't know if he did that on purpose, but it's it's that that character is not going to be forgotten. That character does have a nobility that's going to live. You imagine live past his life. No, Jack Chase doesn't die in that novel the way Jackson does, but he's simply forgotten. 
Quote, in a way I can never fully account for the sailors in the, my hearing at least, and Harry's, never made the slightest allusion to the departed Jackson. One and all they seemed tacitly united, hushing up his memory among them, whether it was that the severity of his bondage under which this man held every one of them did really corrode in their secret hearts, that they thought to repress the recollection of a thing so degrading. I can't determine, but certain it was that his death was their deliverance, which they celebrated by an elevation of spirits unknown before. And such it is with, with all tyrants. Um, then they get home and they get screwed out of their wages. Fortunately, um, Redburn for taking time off. And there's other reasons too. I think Harry Bolton got screwed a bit over his wages too. So, you know, one final exploitation after this voyage is done in the forms of, of their wages being garnished in various ways. And then Harry Bolton and Redburn simply depart. And then we, we get the, the, the novel ends with the last words about Harry Bolton. And Redburn finally gets news sometime later that Harry Bolton went off as on a whaling voyage into the Pacific and he, he died there. And... That's the end of him. And his final thoughts in the novel are the death of Harry Bolton, this, this young potential socialite who just was too restless to really live the elite life in England, be, you know, became a bit of a, of a spendthrift dandy, wanted to go on adventure, and, and died for that in the Pacific. Redburn, however, who did take the time to learn skills of being a sailor, and I, I think there's a lesson here to, if you are going to let wanderlust drive you to the sea or to some restless restless uh, adventure. You know, learn to do it well if you want to survive. Redburn, on the other hand, he does also take voyages in the Pacific and he survives. And so the novel is some kind of reflection on this first voyage. And in that sense, it really drawn, parallels life because Melville himself is reflecting on his own first voyage. And, and that's the novel. Um, Redburn, his first voyage. It's, it's a good one. I, I think I really like it's. It's short. It tells a very tight story. It's got some compelling characters. I think Harry, uh, Redburn himself, a few of the other men that we meet are nice. I, I like stories where we see sailors telling stories. I, I like, you know, like the storytelling where storytelling becomes part of of the narrative. We see this more even in in White Jacket. And to some degree in Moby Dick too, where with the nested storytelling, I liked the, I liked the theme too. And I, I just, I don't, I didn't really catch this the first time I read it. When I first read it, I saw it more as a coming of age story or a, a training memoir, a memoir of training into becoming a sailor, right? What one went through, how one got acculturated to the culture on the ship. And I, I think that's still thematically part of what's going on here. But now more and more, I, I see this really as a circuit that, Beyond that, it, it extends out, especially in the second half of the novel, to be about the circuits of goods and people, this, this mobility uh, across the oceans. The global, it's a story of globalization, essentially. Um, in a way, I don't, I, White Jack is not quite a story of globalization. It's trying to be a story of the world. So in White Jacket, uh, the one about the military vessel, it's called The World in a Man of War. So it's actually a metaphor for the world, but it's not so much a story of globalization. You don't get the sense that we're really talking about how the global economy works. But in Redburn, you are. And, and of the sailing novels, this one is the closest to actually get at a realistic account of, of what the world system was becoming in the later half of the 19th century, or would become the later half of the 19th century. Published in, in 1849, so it's right at the brink of, 
the emergence of industrial capitalism and empire and all that. So that's it. So that's my, my re-recording of part three. So sorry if you listened to the first effort to upload this, my, my embarrassing uh, oversight. Uh, I'll try not to have that happen again. Um, but those, thanks for bearing with me. I hope I have most of the same content that I had the first time. I lost my notes too. Um, so I had to do it from, from memory. So next time, we'll look at the episodes for White Jacket. They're already recorded, I, and I actually just listened to them, and they all sound good. So this, this won't happen again. So uh, my episodes for White Jacket will be coming up shortly, and then we'll follow that up with, with Moby Dick, and then see where we go from there. So thanks, as always, for listening. I'll see you next time with part one of my thoughts on, on the follow-up novel to Redburn, White Jacket. At last there came a Yankee skipper away, you rolling river. He winked his eye and he tipped his flipper.